Friends, it is a humbling thought to think and remember that we are in the presence of God. When we gather in His name, God is with us in this place. We look around and we see faces. We look around us and there's people we know. But there's someone else who's here whom we don't see. And that's God. That's why when we gather, when we gather in His name, God has promised that where two or three are gathered in His name, He is there with them. So when we gather, it's not just about whether or not I'm going to have a good time. It's not about whether or not I am going to see the people I like and say hi to them. The most important thing is whether or not we engage with God, the God who comes to be with us. And He's with us through His Holy Spirit. I wonder, friends, I wonder what would have happened if the Holy Spirit never came down on Pentecost. What would Christianity be like? Would it be different? Would our church be different? If the Spirit of God departed from us, would we know the difference in our gatherings, in our lives? Would we miss Him? Or would our lives be the same? How would we do church if the Spirit would not be with us? Can you imagine? This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn your attention to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Our aim this morning is to see how Luke describes the Holy Spirit in the story of God's salvation as Luke has described it for us in the book of Acts. Now, from the beginning of our series in the, in, the, in the book of Acts, we have been saying that the overall message of this book is the salvation prepared by God in Christ proclaimed to all people. The salvation prepared by God in Christ proclaimed to all people that's what the book of Acts is all about. Uh, two weeks ago, as we were reviewing this book, two weeks ago we looked at the, at the way God is described in the book of Acts. Last week we looked at the salvation of God. And this morning, I would like us to look at what makes the proclamation of this salvation of God. What, does, what makes it effective and powerful? And the answer is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has been sent to make this salvation of God effective and to make it succeed in spreading to the ends of the earth. My hope this morning is that we would, we would grow and come to realize and appreciate the great importance of the Holy Spirit in the larger story of God's salvation. Not just in our own lives as individuals, but the work of the Holy Spirit in the larger story of God's salvation. So we will look this morning to the entire book of Acts. We won't look at the entire Bible, just at the book of Acts, and see how Luke is interested to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit. And just to get us going, I would like to encourage you to, to open Scripture to Acts chapter 1, verse 
1 through 8, but realize that we'll be looking at all of Acts this morning. Here's the word of the Lord in Acts 1, verse 1 to verse 8. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 909. Here's the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray for me, with me and for me? Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us now. You would speak to us that which you have revealed in your Scriptures about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, about his work in us and for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be exalted and glorified even now in our midst. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, there's two broad things that Luke wants to say about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. He wants to speak about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus, even in Acts. And then he will spend most of his time speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, and especially in the lives of the churches, in the life of the churches in Acts. And this morning, these two points are going to be the broad, broad areas that we're going to tackle this morning. Two big ideas, and then we'll spend most of our time in the second part, in the second point, in the way the work of the Spirit works in the lives of, of believers. But first and foremost, Luke, even in Acts, Luke speaks about the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. Notice how he begins his, his book. In the first book, O Theophilus, that refers to the Gospel of Luke, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, until he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Notice how Jesus gave commands to his disciples. It was through the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? Now, Jesus could have given commands to his disciples simply by commanding them. And that would have been enough. Jesus could speak, and that would be enough. We know that from the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Luke, that that was enough. And yet, when it comes to commanding the disciples, especially now, Luke emphasizes that when he came to com giving commands to the disciples, Jesus gave these commands through the Holy Spirit. Or notice how 
Peter spoke about the life of Jesus in Acts 10, when Peter describes the life of Jesus to Cornelius and the Gentile crowd in Cornelius' house, Peter goes and describes the life of Jesus. And in Acts 10.38, here's what Peter says. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Now, why does Peter say that? Why is he emphasizing that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power? Well, if we take a quick look at how Luke describes the life of Jesus in his gospel, we notice that actually Luke emphasized the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. Remember the very birth of Jesus when the angel came to Mary and told Mary that she will be with child? And Mary said, how will that happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit was actually involved in the very incarnation of Jesus. When John, John the Baptist tells us that Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that promise is taken up again in Acts 1, when Jesus reminds the disciples of what John the Baptist promised. And, and we know that in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, that baptism with the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled. And then in Acts 11, Peter remembers the words of Jesus and this promise of, of Jesus that he will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. Luke, along with the other gospel writers, tells us that Jesus' own baptism, when Jesus was baptized, he received the Holy Spirit. So that the beginning of Jesus' public ministry was introduced by the coming of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. When Jesus went into the desert to be tempted, who led him there? The Spirit. And then when the 40 days were over, the 40 days of, of being tempted in the desert were over, Jesus, we are told, returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then the first sermon recorded in the Gospels, the first sermon Jesus gave, in one of the synagogues in, uh, in, in, in Israel, we are told that he opened the book of Isaiah. He read it. And then after he finished reading it, he closed it. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Amazing. That's how Jesus began preaching. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why so much focus in the Gospel of Luke and in, in, in the book of Acts upon Jesus having the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit upon him? Well, if you go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 42, the God says through the prophet, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. That was a characteristic of the servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. And who is the servant of the Lord? It's Jesus. Continue to read Isaiah 42, and you'll see the descriptions, and it is Jesus. That's why Luke emphasizes so much the presence of the Holy Spirit upon the ministry of Jesus. No wonder that when 
when Peter in Acts 10 spoke about the life of, and ministry of Jesus, Peter emphasized that God had anointed Jesus with his Holy Spirit and with power. Now, friends, why am I bringing this out to you? Here's why. If Jesus needed the anointing with the Holy Spirit, what does that say about the necessity of the Holy Spirit for us? Just think about it. If Jesus, the one incarnate, the, the Son of God, needed the Holy Spirit and, and received the Holy Spirit for His ministry, what does that say about us? If God worked through Jesus by anointing with the Spirit, I wonder, what does that say about the importance of the Holy Spirit today? Do we think that we can do God's will, God's work apart, apart from His Spirit? I don't know of any Christians who would think that. Any Christian, if asked that question, would, would say, of course we need the Holy Spirit in everything we do. But it's not just about an intellectual answer. I wonder how many of us think about the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and among us. When we sing to one another, or when we hear the Word of God preached, or when we read the Word to ourselves in our own quiet times, how often do we remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who's actually working in us and among us? And that without Him, our experience here would be just a social gathering, a human re religious experience. In the Old Testament, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was described as belonging to the new age when God will restore His people, the Messianic age. In Isaiah 32, God speaks about the destruction that He will bring upon His people because of their disobedience. And Isaiah says that, that God will let that happen until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Isaiah 32, 15. After that, God says, I will restore. After that, after the, poor, the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, God says, I will restore my people. That's why in the ministry of Jesus was, was so characterized by the ministry of the Spirit of God. Because in the coming of Christ, the age of restoration for God's people was begun. That's why when we get to Acts 1, Luke emphasizes first and foremost the ministry of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit upon Jesus before he will speak about the Holy Spirit upon his followers. Oh, Christian, I hope that this truth brings you joy and encouragement and comfort. The Holy Spirit that was upon Jesus has been promised upon his followers as well. So let's look now to the Holy Spirit in the believers. The second major, and actually the, the most emphasis Luke gives in the book of Acts is upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit upon the believers. Of course, the greatest event in Acts is the day of Pentecost. It's the fulfillment of what John the Baptist said about Jesus, that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus indeed did that. Even though Pentecost is a unique event in the history of God's salvation, Pentecost is a time when Jesus baptizes his followers with the Holy Spirit. Even though that's a unique event, unrepeatable, yet the work of the Holy Spirit continues to extend and grow as we see throughout the book of Acts. Now, who is the Spirit given to? Who is the Holy Spirit given to? Well, the Holy Spirit is given to the followers of Jesus, to those who have repented of their sins and have trusted Jesus, so that 
through Jesus, they can be saved by God. And whomever God saves, whomever God restores to himself, God promises to give his spirit to them. When Peter spoke to the crowd in Acts chapter 2, and they heard about their sin, and they became convicted, they asked, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, dear friends, is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is not reserved for the elite. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not reserved just for the church leaders. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not reserved just for the more spiritual people. No. When God said He will restore His people and His salvation will go to the ends of the earth, God promised to give that Spirit to all those who repent and turn to Jesus in, in faith. I love what Leon Morris says, that God in Christ has given the Spirit to those who put their trust in Him. That's why in Acts 11, when Peter is questioned by the Christian Jews why he went and spent time and ate and, and hang out with the Gentiles in the, in the house of Cornelius, Peter tells him about the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon them as Peter was merely speaking. And, and, and the crowd responds when they heard that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles just as it was given, as he was given to the, to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. What they responded and exclaimed, their conclusion is, then the, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Did you hear that? They received the Holy Spirit. And yet what they concluded is that they had received repentance that leads to life. Because in the granting of the Holy Spirit, God is actually granting His salvation as well. And those who actually receive God's salvation receive God's Holy Spirit. God has given the Gentiles the Holy Spirit. But these Jewish Christians understood very well that it was the pouring of the Spirit upon the Gentiles that signified that granting of the repentance. Friends, isn't it amazing that God has chosen to give His Spirit to everyone who repents and turns to Christ? This is the, this is the baptism of, of the Holy Spirit. When, when we repent and turn to Christ, God comes to live inside of us. God comes by His Spirit to live with us. And we have a distinct experience of God and of Christ inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We begin to love God in a new way. We begin to love His Word in a new way. We begin to love God's people in a new way. And we have an experience of God inside of us. Now, it's true that sometimes people go through the motion of, of repenting or go through the motion of, of turning to Christ or even being baptized without that experience of the Holy Spirit inside of them. But friends, reality is that when we truly turn to God, when we truly repent of our sin and, and, and turn to Christ in, in, in forgiveness and faith, God actually comes to dwell inside of us. And it is a distinct experience. And that experience it happens to us by His Holy Spirit. Oh, friends, when, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you know it. We know it. Our affections start to change. Our desires for the things of God 
come inside of us in an unparalleled way. And this promise of the Father is for all those who indeed turn to Christ. But I wonder, I wonder this morning if you have ever experienced that indwelling, that coming of the Holy Spirit upon you when you have turned and repented and turned to Christ in faith. If you, if you have not, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Perhaps part of the reason is because you have made your, your turn to Christ only to be an intellectual experience, only, only a mental ascent, only an acknowledgement. And actually, God may have not actually saved your heart. Actually, God may have not actually come in to dwell in you. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. If you'd like to know more of what does it mean to, to turn to Christ in such a way that indeed the Holy Spirit comes upon you and comes to dwell in you. But notice, notice that what the Spirit is, is doing in the book of Acts. We see to whom it is given. It is given to all those who repent and turn to Christ. But let's look at, at what the Spirit is doing in the book of Acts. And I looked at the book, and I was able to, to organize these things in about seven categories, seven things that the, book of, that the Holy Spirit does when he, when he comes and he has come in the book of Acts. And the, these are things that he's able to do even, even today. The Spirit was given to empower the disciples to witness for Christ. And Jesus made that purpose very clear in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. The first and most explicit purpose for the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts is to give power to witness to Christ. Friends, if Jesus himself needed this power from the Holy Spirit when he began his ministry... How much do we need it? Friends, our witness to Christ is not supposed to be in our own strength or power. God supplied that power through the Holy Spirit, yet do we remember this? Or do, do, we, do we rely upon the Holy Spirit as we seek to be His witnesses? Do we seek God's empowerment through His Spirit in our lives, in our church? Does our prayer life show our dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God? In Acts 5.32, Peter says that the Holy Spirit is a witness along with the disciples. So when the disciples witness, Peter says, and the Holy Spirit is witnessing as well. When Stephen preached in Acts 7, he says that the crowd always resisted the Spirit. So when the crowd resisted the words of, of Stephen, Stephen said, you always resist the Spirit. It's amazing. That parallel to our own words is actually, and to our own witness, is actually the witness of the Holy Spirit that happens so that people who reject our witness are also rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit. We're not alone when we witness to Christ. Dear Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged. We're not alone when we witness to Christ. We're not supposed to be alone. We're not supposed to do it in our power or wisdom or smartness. We are to be His mouthpiece. Therefore, speak with confidence, relying upon the Holy Spirit. Second, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was heard in the Old Testament Scriptures. Look at Acts 1.16. Even before the day of Pentecost, Peter recognized that the Old Testament Scriptures that in them the Holy Spirit was speaking. So Peter says in 1.16, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Did you see how Peter thinks about the Scriptures, that it is the Holy Spirit who speaks through them? In Acts 4, we see the same when Peter speaks about the Spirit speaking through the mouth of David. The same thing we see in Acts 28 when Paul speaks about Isaiah, that actually it was the Spirit who spoke through the mouth of Isaiah. This means that, friends, to have a high view of the Holy Spirit is to have a high view of Scripture. To have a high view of the Holy Spirit is to have a high view of Scripture. People who are full of the Spirit of God have a high regard for the Scriptures which the Spirit inspired. So you want to ask yourself, how, do I, how can I gauge if I'm full of the Holy Spirit today, this week? Or just ask yourself, how much are you hungering for the Scripture that the Holy Spirit inspired? Do you look for it? Do you want to read it? Do you read it with anticipation? Or do you just read it as if it's a to-do list on your thing to do? To feel good about yourself or, or just to be obedient? It's good to be obedient, don't get me wrong, but, but the fullness of the Spirit is manifested in us in a very simple way. One very easy way. Ask yourself, how hungry are you for the Word of God? How, how high regard do you have for it? And do you have enough regard for it that you seek it? You seek to read it for your spiritual nourishment. Third, the Holy Spirit was present in the church. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was present in the church. The newly restored people of God are a community in which the Spirit now dwells. In Acts, this emphasis upon the Spirit is not so much upon the individual believer. We see that in the letters of Paul. But in the book of Acts, the primary emphasis about about the presence of the Holy Spirit is in the church. So when we look to the whole work of the Spirit in Acts, we see the work of the Spirit in the church. The work of the Spirit manifests in the gathering of the saints, in their work together to witness to Christ, in their newly formed communities. So when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles, Luke says that they actually lied to the Holy Spirit. And that by their action of lying to the church, they actually put the Spirit of God to the test. My friends, that's, that's a scary thought. To think that what you do towards other believers in church, let's say if you, you were to lie to them or if you were to do something that's negative or destructive, that, you're, that we actually might be acting against the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God is in that church. Now, today we often think about the work of the Spirit only in our lives as individuals. And no doubt Scripture speaks about that. But in Acts, the focus is upon the work of the Spirit who is present in the church. So that what we do towards the church or the people in the church is actually what we do towards God. Sobering thought. A fourth thing that the Spirit does in the book of Acts, He acts as a guide. The Spirit spoke to the church in Antioch and guided the church in Antioch in the first missionary journey and in the endeavor to send off Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 15, where there is a great debate, we read that the apostles and the elders of the church were seeking the Spirit's guidance so that in Acts 15, 28, they, when they finally reached a conclusion, here's what they concluded. They wrote, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us. 
they aligned their decision to what first seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And whatever was seem, seemed good to the Holy Spirit, they aligned their decision with that so they could write, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Even though at first they had a hard time with it. Remember? They had a hard time with it. With the whole decision about how to think about the Jews and the Gentiles being together in, in this new body called the church. When Peter and Barnabas were sent off on their missionary journey and they were guided by the... I'm sorry, when Paul and Barnabas were sent off, they were guided by the Spirit not to go to certain places so they could go to Macedonia. When Paul gets ready to go to Jerusalem, we are told that he purposed in the Spirit. In other words, his decision to go was a decision in the Spirit. And later, when he approached Jerusalem and he, he was warned about all these sufferings that await for him, he told that us that he was constrained by the Spirit. So in Acts, the Spirit was very active in guiding and directing the early believers and the mission of the church. Friends, is it possible? Is it possible that the Holy Spirit can guide us in directions that at first we want to resist? Think about your life. Think about the life of the church. Their time, and think about their life in, in, in the book of Acts, the life of the church in the book of Acts. The, the, the Jewish Christians had a hard time with God's plan of salvation being extended to the Gentiles and how to integrate that. And they had all kinds of obstacles they wanted to put. And yet the Spirit of God was moving and guiding them, even when at first they wanted to resist. Fifthly, the Holy Spirit gave encouragement to the church. In Acts 9, 30 and 31, we read, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What was the church walking into? In the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the word for comfort there is also the word for encouragement. It's the same word. Either comfort and consolation or encouragement. Both are the same word. This means that the comfort or the consolation or the encouragement that the church sought were the comfort or the encouragement that comes from the Holy Spirit. Because they were seeking the fear of the Lord and the encouragement that comes from the Spirit of God, they multiplied. Now today, people, however, get their encouragement from all kinds of other sources. We get encouragement if the church multiplies. Back then, they got encouragement from the Spirit. The Spirit was their source of encouragement and strength and comfort. And because the Spirit was that source, and they were walking in that comfort that comes from the Spirit, the results followed. Today, we turn that around. We seem to be interested and encouraged only when we see the results. Oh, friends, I call on you. Turn that back to the way it was in the book of Acts. Let our encouragement and comfort come from walking in the Spirit. Let that be our source of encouragement. And you'll see that when the Spirit of God, when the church lives in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the Lord will do these results in His ways, in His timing, in His wisdom. But friends, Acts tells us that the Holy Spirit is our source of comfort and consolation and encouragement. And we grieve the Spirit if we find more encouragement 
in other things, even numbers. May we seek to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort and encouragement of the Spirit. The sixth thing that the Spirit does, Holy Spirit appointed the spiritual leaders in the church. It's amazing. Friends, it's amazing that the Spirit is so interested and so involved in the life of the church that he actually appoints and picks and makes people be the spiritual overseers in the church. Yes, the, 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 God calls us to, to engage in that process as well by affirming that which the Spirit chooses. But in the book of Acts, chapter 20, we see that Paul says to the elders in Ephesus that it is the Spirit of God who made them to be overseers and shepherds and, and elders to shepherd the church of God. It's comforting to know that we are not left alone in making a decision who should be our spiritual leaders. Actually, the Holy Spirit takes that responsibility from the congregation. He makes them. And then God calls us as a congregation to affirm that which the Spirit makes. That's comforting. If we only walk in the, in the guidance of the Spirit, if we only walk in the, in the comfort of the Spirit, the Spirit will make it known to us who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders who are guiding and leading this congregation. And we saw that in the book of Acts, the, the large majority of, this, of the scenarios, all scenarios actually, we see a plurality of those spiritual leaders in every local church. Church, take comfort in that. And lastly, we see the seventh thing we see in the Holy Spirit doing in the book of Acts is miraculous signs. Miraculous signs. In Acts 8, the Spirit snatched Philip after the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Don't ask me to unpack how that happened. I don't know. We just know it happened. The Spirit occasionally predicted future events like the famine in Acts 11 or the future sufferings of Paul that he was to endure in Jerusalem. Friends, the Spirit is able to do miraculous works. That's why we pray. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for the sick. That's why we pray for direction and guidance. That's why we pray that God would intervene in situations that seem hard or impossible. But at the same time, friends, we don't make the miraculous experiences an end of our pursuit. From the first century on, there were many who sought the experience above the real authentic encounter with God. That's why Paul and John occasionally encourage believers to, to test what others claim and see if it is indeed coming from the Spirit. In Corinth, for instance, Paul rebuked the church for seeking certain spiritual gifts, yet they were lacking in the fruit of the Spirit among them. And Paul says, why are you looking for the gift if you're actually immature? You're, there's, no, there's no spiritual maturity among you. They were seeking experiences that were self-centered rather than experiences that were edifying others spiritually. They were seeking miraculous experiences instead of seeking the spiritual maturity that the Spirit truly brings. So that Paul rebuked them, that he could not address them as spiritual, even though they were looking for spiritual gifts. I hope this gives us a caution. We believe the Spirit has a freedom to act in whatever way He wants to. But we should be cautious when other people pretend to speak in terms in the name of the Spirit in a way that actually contradicts the Scripture or in a way that contradicts the true signs of the Spirit's presence in a church. The signs of the Spirit's presence in a church are a, spread, a sense of the presence of God in our gatherings. You want to know how? How do we know that the Spirit of God is, is with us, among us? There's a sense of the presence of God when we gather. There's a sense of awe for God. 
not of informality or casualty or, or sort of the, the superficial casualness that, that characterizes our culture and everything in our lives. But there is a distinct sense of, of, of awe for God. There's a distinct love for God. There's a distinct love and unity for one another and a sense of community with people who are different than us in a way that we can't explain it sociologically. There's a sense of conviction of sin and the pursuit of repentance and holiness. There's a sense of divine joy and, and gratefulness to God among us. There's a natural desire to take the gospel to the lost. And we have a burden that's, that's on every one of us. These are some of the signs that the Holy Spirit is among us. And friends, each of these signs are not natural in our flesh. They are miraculous works of the Spirit of God who overcomes our fleshly sinful tendencies and creates instead a beautiful picture of the image of Christ in the church. So that indeed the church is the body of Christ. Friends, we considered seven ways, seven ways in which the Spirit works in the book of Acts. Luke's focus on the Spirit has been predominantly corporate, predominantly in the life of the church. The Spirit creates a new community of God's restored people, a community in which Jews and Gentiles become brothers and sisters. And they're not becoming brothers and sisters who play in their separate rooms with their separate toys. That's not the kind of brothers and sisters they are. But they're people who mingle together, who do things together, who indeed are one. There's no more hall of hostility between them. Oh, friends, the Spirit creates a miraculous unity and therefore a miraculous community. That's the church. That's why a church really is a miracle. Because the Spirit creates it in a miraculous way. I love what Leon Morris says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables the church of God to do the task to which it was called and to be the church it ought to be. So much, so often, friends, churches can easily fall into a trench of just doing the social things they do. Things that can be explained by human power, human wisdom, human efforts. And we have a, a great, great human community. We call that the church because we simply have religious content. That is not the church. The church is a miraculous event that the Spirit of God creates. And we'll see more of that next week as we will look at how, the, how Luke describes the church in the book of Acts next week. But if you want to see more of the Spirit of God among us, let's ask God to fill us in fresh measures, to revive among us the work of the Spirit. The Spirit has already been poured out on Pentecost. The Spirit, we live in the age when the Spirit has been poured out. Now we can ask God to fill us again, to revive in us His work, so that indeed we as a church, we can do the miraculous experiences that only the Spirit of God can do among us and be that which human beings cannot be on their own. We cannot be the church without the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can work that miraculously in us. Let's ask God to do that among us. Would you pray with me for that? Father, thank you that you have from the beginning of the Old Testament, from the beginning of the story of salvation, if you've planned it, you have designed a time, a, a, an age, a season, a stage in the history of salvation 
when you would pour out your spirit so that it would not be just on the elites and on the spiritually, spiritual leaders, but it would be on all those who are part of your salvation, who have come to be saved by your grace. Father, thank you that you desire and you have so designed your spirit to be active and living in your church. Father, thank you that it is your spirit that brings life to the church. It is your spirit who unites us. It is your spirit who brings us the benefits of Christ. So indeed, we are a miraculous community. Oh Lord, we pray, would you restore in us? Would you fill us again with your power so that we may see that amazing, unnatural, spiritual power working in us so that we may indeed be witnesses to your power, your majesty, your gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray you would do great and mighty things through us again, once again, through your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray.